Thanks for listening and supporting The Fall Line. We want to share a piece of news about another show that you might enjoy. Fall Line host Laura Norton and producer Maura Curry have launched a new independent podcast called One Strange Thing. It's a compact, immersive narrative show that explores mysterious local news stories from all over the United States about regular people, just like you and me, who have had extraordinary experiences that can't quite be explained. Please stay tuned for just a moment to hear the promo now, then head over to One Strange Thing and subscribe. You can find a link in our show notes. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. These are bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a class ring that disappeared on one continent and reappeared on another. And the ominous whistling that terrorized a young bride in Louisiana. And the chemical warfare once waged on a sleepy town in Illinois. And the mysterious hum that's rattling Anchorage, Alaska. And then there's the house in Atlanta that once dripped human blood. And that's just the start. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Join us on September 8th to hear the first episode of One Strange Thing. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is the second half of our long-form interview with Dr. Amy Michael, forensic anthropologist and lecturer at the University of New Hampshire. We pick up where our last episode left off, a discussion of Dr. Michael's most memorable and affecting cases. You've been involved in a number of fascinating cases in the past few years. Can you talk to us about a few of them? Sure. I think that the probably the most personally satisfying case for a number of reasons that I've been involved in um, lately is the case of Joseph Henry Loveless or um, Clark County John Doe, Idaho John Doe, known by a few different names. Um, this was a case that when I got a job at Idaho State University in 2017 as a visiting assistant professor, I walked into the lab on the first day and there was a nearly complete um, body laid out, skeletonized human remains laid out in, on the lab table. And I asked my colleague at the time, you know, well, what's the, what's up with this case? Um, the, it was very apparent that there was no head, there was no skull um, at all, but basically everything else was there with the exception of a few things. And he explained the, the story to me that in 1979 and again in 1991, parts of this 
man's body were found, we were certain it was a male, from the uh, physical remains. The remains have been found dismembered in this remote Idaho cave in 79 and 91, and just, you know, it had made a, the case had made it all the way to the Smithsonian. You can read about it in Doug Ubelocker's book, Bones. He's a famous forensic anthropologist. Um, you know, and it was just, part of it was, was, uh, you know, that there was no head ever recovered, and the head is a really identifying part of the body, as we all know. And another uh, kind of probable reason why the case had not been, uh, or made any real movement or been resolved is because, you know, after 1991, people essentially stopped working on it. And at Idaho State, you know, it became kind of this teaching uh, specimen for students. So many, many students have practiced a biological profile, estimating age and sex and stature and ancestry on these remains. But, you know, it was sort of treated as, um, you know, this is an impossible case. There's no head. It's very old. Lots of people over the years had searched the cave for uh, any other remains, notably, obviously, the head. And they'd never been found, and the cave had been lidared, so there was all kinds of, like, great work done on it. And I'd love to compile a list of everyone over the, you know, past 40 years or whatever that has worked on the case, because it, it's tons of people. It's not to say that, you know, nobody cared. Um, certainly they did. But I think that when I walked in and I heard that story, I was like, I, I really need to, like, I want to take my shot at this. And I had always been sort of a fan of what the DNA Doe Project was doing. I thought, well, this is a really challenging case. They seem to take on challenging cases. So uh, I sat on it for a year, honestly, um, because I got involved with teaching and other casework in Idaho. And um, But I always thought about it. And it wasn't actually until I left Idaho State for my job currently at University of New Hampshire that I got in touch with a colleague again at Idaho State and said, hey, do you want to submit that to DNA Doe Project? I mean, like, the worst they can tell us is no. And by that time, I had made friends with two forensic genealogists, Lee and Anthony Redgrave, and they encouraged me to do it. And so, uh, long story short, um, this this case took a turn that I don't think any of us ever expected. Um, Idaho John Doe was revealed to be Joseph Henry Loveless. The story went pretty viral. We were interviewed for New York Times and everything. Um, and, you know, I had been looking at this body for a year, looking at the dismemberment marks, feeling like, man, somebody, somebody murdered this man, cut him up, put him in a cave to be found who knows how long later, because we didn't have any idea when he died, of course. But kind of the the going hypothesis was that he, he was probably killed sometime in the 60s, and that's because his remains, when they were found in 79, were still mummified. Um, and so nobody really thought, uh, with the mummified soft tissue present, that he could have been dead for much longer than, than 10 years. Now, the caveat to that is that some clothing was recovered with him, and the clothing did look old. Um, but, you know, the body didn't. And so, um, this kind of sum total of factors added, uh, added up, plus the uh, very long time since discovery, um, plus there were some missing elements over the years, uh, you know, that had gone to the FBI and never returned and things like this, which is not uncommon in, in old cases. Um, it just all felt kind of like, God, I don't, I, it was almost like we had to start from scratch, you know? So enter the forensic genealogist, who I, I, it was my opinion that, you know, there was no more anthropology you could throw at this case. Like, we knew what we knew. We had an age estimate. We had a sex estimate. Um, we had a trauma analysis. Uh, let's try something else. And so the sheriff agreed to it. 
and we sent um, some remains off to be sampled uh, for DNA sequencing. And I think it was about four months after um, the genealogist started working on it that they, they narrowed in on a possible identification. That was confirmed through um, a DNA swab of his closest living relative. And uh, when I heard who his closest living relative was and the age of this person, which was 87 years old, I was like, oh, holy shit, we have a case that is way older than we thought. So to my knowledge, I think this is um, Joseph Henry Lovelace's case is the oldest identification to forensic identification to be resolved using genetic genealogy. It was a 103 year old homicide. Um, what we found out in addition about Lovelace's life was also very interesting. I thought it's like a Wild West tale. Um, I got a little bit of flack for this on the internet after I did an interview and I said, you know, I've been advocating for this man um, to get to get identified. And people kept asking, well, are you disappointed? Because it turns out he was a murderer himself. He killed his wife and he went to jail for that. He escaped jail and then he was never seen again. So he was killed by somebody. But again, he was a killer himself. Um, and so people kept asking, well, are you disappointed that you identified a murderer? And I was like, that's such a, I mean, I guess I, I understood why they were asking that. But at the same time, I thought, well, you know, all I saw was a dismembered human body on a table. That's what I cared about. And that's, I wanted to find out who he was because, you know, I, I still think we can't mete out justice unequally. I mean, we can't just resolve the cases of quote unquote good people. And of course, we had no idea who he was when we started trying to identify him. So it turned out to be this just crazy, like, Wild West uh, story with, like, bootlegging and, you know, jailbreaks. And, uh, you know, the guy had, like, 10 plus aliases. Um, and so it's, it just, it was, it was so interesting to me to see that, you know, kind of all these forensic experts still, we still couldn't generate the right post-mortem interval. We were still so far off. And it was also a good personal lesson to me because I thought, well, you know, yeah, I had to have this like kind of personal reckoning with myself. Like, do I only want to solve the cases of, of good people or should we try to solve every homicide victim's case? And, you know, I'm firmly in that camp. So uh, I, and along the way, of course, I learned much more about genetic genealogy and I have like the utmost respect for uh, the genealogists who, who donate their time to work on these cases too. And I think we can all agree that without them, this case would never, ever have been resolved. And we would still not know who uh, Joseph Henry Lovelace was. And he would be sitting, you know, in a box on a shelf um, instead of being identified and, and having some some modicum of dignity, I think, restored um, to the remains after they've been handled for so long by other people. So that was a pretty satisfying case. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, I got involved with... Um, a case that we just called Peoria John Doe. And um, this was another dismemberment case where a uh, torso was found a couple counties away from a severed head. Uh, both were in various states of decomposition. And so I did an examination of the head um, and some of the ribs. And I tried to uh, give law enforcement a better age estimate um, using histology, the, the kind of method that I am, that I specialize in. But eventually, you know, it was the same situation where multiple anthropologists looked at the remains and, it, you know, all we can do is, is generate an age and sex profile and things like this and, and tell you what we see on the remains. But 
Um, you know, if that doesn't match up any missing persons lists, then you're kind of at a, at a uh, standstill. So I recommended uh, law enforcement contact DNA Doe Project on that one too. And that was a pretty quick solve for them. And they found out who that man was. And he was uh, known to be living in like Hawaii, uh, but was from Illinois. And so he he was killed in Illinois. And so that's an active homicide investigation, but you can read all about that. Uh, about what law enforcement at least released and, and what I've said online too. Um, aside from those cases that uh, genetic genealogy was used in, I've been involved, those are, I've, I've been involved in many more cases where genetic genealogy of course was not used because it's kind of a, a recent development. So I would say the one that sticks out um, the most to me is a case of a woman named Shannon Siders. She was killed in 1989 in Michigan and um, her body was recovered about six months after her death. So she goes missing. Nobody, nobody sees her. And about six months later, hunters recover her partially mummified, mummified body in the woods. And I think there's even a Cold Case Files episode on her. But we went, we were briefed by the state police and we went to the exhumation. We were, of course, uh, going to help with the exhumation to remove the casket from the grave. And it just, there were just these kind of odd elements from the jump. And I, I, I don't, I don't think I can say much about the actual exhumation, but I can say that, um, we did remove her casket and took it to the medical examiner's office. And when we started looking at her remains, you know, it was very clear that she had, um, uh, blunt force trauma to elements of her skeleton. And I think what was just most kind of interesting to me was to see the sort of process that was my first time really talking to members of a cold case team usually we would get a case in a lab and it's very far removed from you know you might not even ever meet the detective in charge you know because you're asked to just do kind of one small piece of a case and this is the first time where it felt like there were there was a lot of collaboration and you know i was a student at the time and so um i was just watching the medical examiner with the cold case detectives, um, knowing that uh, some family members had been at the exhumation. And I thought, okay, this is how you do it. Like, this is how you advocate for a victim in a way that feels like everyone is on board and that you all, despite how you might like <laughs> even personally feel about each other or personally, you know, feel about anything, like everyone's focus is on this person and um, justice for this person. So in that case, we knew who she was. It wasn't a doe case, but we wanted to know, did the trauma to her remains um, match up with the, with the uh, information law enforcement was getting when they reopened the case? And in fact, I will say that um, the, uh, she was killed by two brothers, and I believe they've exhausted all their appeals, so they'll be in prison for the rest of their natural lives. Um, so her name is Shannon Siders, and her, her dad should be really credited with keeping her case alive. He would rent billboards in Michigan, and he really put pressure on law enforcement to, to figure out um, who had killed her. So uh, I think about her case a lot, and um, I often think about it when it feels like uh, we have all the information um, in a case, like if we have a situation where we have uh, the victims, like, we know who they are, but we don't know what happened to them. It's like, it's like an entirely different kind of, you know, kind of clawing at your brain 
um, to figure out what happened to them than it is in a Doe case when you're starting with, well, who even is this person, you know, and what happened to them feels like the, like a distant question because you need to know um, who they are first. So I think that, you know, I think of the Doe cases and I think of those kind of complex cases like Shane Insider's um, first, uh, when I think of the fascinating cases that I've been involved with over the years. But, you know, the majority of the cases, like I've said, are, are these kind of one-offs where we might get a single element washed up on a beach or um, something recovered from an attic. Uh, and I think that the other cases, just if I can speak generally about them, um, maybe by like theme that stick with me are child abuse cases and search and recovery cases. So very generally speaking, child abuse cases, um, the anthropologist gets called in when uh, it, it appears that maybe, um, well, aside from trauma, of course, we could weigh in on that, but I've worked on a few where it appears that the biological age of the individual doesn't reflect their chronological age. And so by this, I mean that skeletally, they might look, you know, five or six, and dentally, they might look eight or nine. So the cool thing about your body is that unless there is something really serious going on, your teeth are going to erupt on a regular schedule despite your um, nutritional status or despite any abuse that's happening to you. But your bones are, of course, going to slow down or, or uh, you know, growth might, uh, you might experience growth cessation. So uh, we can actually compare within somebody's body their dental age to their skeletal age. And then if we know their real chronological age, we can compare all these things and say, well, there is evidence on from this body that this individual was suffering some kind of, you know, systematic abuse potentially. And I've been involved in a number of child abuse cases where where that forensic anthropology evidence was really critical. Um, there's one in particular that I, I mean, I can close my eyes and like see this young girl's body and we just, we just, you know, we, she had been identified, we knew who she was. So the answer was not, or the question was not that. The question was, has she experienced abuse um and can you tell that from the teeth and the bones and we were able to say as soon as we got to the morgue yes you know if she is supposed to be 10 uh skeletally she's five and 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 the teeth were a mess too and so uh those cases feel even different from a doe case because you know you're talking about um, a, a child in this case who uh, was killed or neglected at the hands of, you know, an alleged caretaker. And so that kind of fires you up like in a different way, I think. And I, I know a lot of forensic anthropologists who are, um, or biological anthropologists who are, uh, you know, they can work child abuse cases from the, from the perspective of a scientist. And, you know, I can as well, but I think that you know, those do stay with you. I don't, I can't imagine how they wouldn't. Uh, they certainly stay with me. And then the, the last kind of thematic kind of uh, case type, I guess, that I personally really like are search and recovery cases. I think this is mostly because I just like to be away from my office and, and, I, and I'm a trained archaeologist, so I, I like going out and excavating. Um, but search and recovery cases are uh, very, are, I can't say I've been in I've been involved with any that are similar to each other. They're, they're usually pretty different. Um, the one that sticks out in my head uh, recently is, again, another Idaho case, actually. It was 
uh, search and recovery for a young kid named Dior Coons. In his case, has made it to, um, like, I think there's a People Investigates a series about him and all kinds of stuff. But uh, you can certainly look it up. But essentially, um, we were going out to hike out uh, to see if there were if there was any skeletal evidence left behind at a place where some cadaver dogs had had hit on a scent. And so I took a bunch of students out with me and we had this crazy day, like hiking up this uh, mountain and going to look for um, these remains, you know, and, and once we got there, it was all very kind of, you know, it was a really great hike. And then you get to the site and you're like, oh yeah, this is what we're here for. And it was, you know, I was proud of my students because it was kind of this like wave of, um, I don't know, calm and respect that, that sort of descended. And then we got to work and we didn't find anything that day. Um, and his remains have never been found. But I think that being out in a place where a perpetrator might have placed a body also kind of gives you this added dimension to the work that you do. You know, it's outside of a lab. You're at an actual potential crime scene, if not a crime scene, uh, definitely the potential recovery site. Sometimes they're one and the same, sometimes they're not. Um, and I think that that being there physically where somebody either lost their life or where um, they've been hidden away is something that it, it feels strange to say it's a privilege and I don't mean it in any kind of good way, but it is like a weight. I think that, um, you know, I, I like, I tend to want to share with students and colleagues because it feels like you're very connected to where this person was. And it, to me, I mean, everyone comes at this differently. Certainly this is just my approach, but to me, that gives me like an added layer of personal connection where I really want to see this case through. And I think that, you know, I cannot just be a scientist. I'm an anthropologist first, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientific leaning anthropologist, but I care about people first. And so seeing where they were buried or where they lost their lives is always like very, very powerful for me. So you actually just mentioned your students. So I think this is a good time to talk about the fact that you're also a professor. You're a lecturer at the University of New Hampshire. What kind of classes do you teach there? So I'm lucky that I get it, that I get to teach classes that for the most part that I've designed and that students seem to respond to. Um, we have a lot of interest at my university, and I think that probably at all the universities I've worked at uh, around forensic anthropology. So I always teach at least one forensic anthropology class per, per semester. This coming fall, I'll teach a class that I designed called Bioarchaeology of Women and Children. So this is um, a class that will be uh, focused on using human skeletal remains and information um, to ask questions about past um uh, gender, kind of from a gendered perspective. So I'm a core faculty member in women and gender studies too. Um, so I, I like to kind of approach um, both forensics and bioarchaeology from a, a, through a gendered lens as well. I've also taught a class at um, University of New Hampshire called Cold Cases in Forensic Anthropology, where my students actually uh, divided themselves up into like investigation squads and they researched a cold case um, themselves most chose to do a local-ish one and um, to, to some really interesting successes. Uh, beyond that, I teach human osteology. So I train students how to use skeletal remains to um, ask questions about uh, disease and trauma and pathology, age and ancestry. 
And then I teach a large gen ed on occasion called the human story where we talk about DNA and our human ancestors and evolutionary theory and Darwinism, kind of the underpinnings um, of the discipline of biological anthropology before we get into the sort of the cool subdisciplines of forensic anthro and, and bioarchaeology and all of that. So this is related. Is forensic anthropology a popular subject? And if so, what is drawing students toward that field of forensic science? So I will say that, yes, it's a resounding yes. Forensic anthropology is a very popular subject. My classes fill. Um, they usually overfill. I think that in the fall, they're having me teach two sections because of the demand. So, um, and I would say that that's the case at, at any school that offers it. Uh, that would be my guess. So it's interesting that you asked what student, what is drawing students towards this field? Because we don't know. All right. So actually at um the american academy of forensic sciences meetings the national meetings every couple of years people will you know give a poster or a, or a paper on um you know why are so many female students interested in this because the disparity is there i would say that my classes are 75 plus percent female um i think in my osteology class i have two males at, you know out of a class of 20. So um, yes, it's a popular subject, but it's overwhelmingly a popular subject with women. And your guess for that is as good as mine. I think some of the hypotheses that I've read around that are like, some of them are, are a little uh, short-sighted and kind of, you know, based in stereotypes. I think like, oh, women are just more empathetic. I, don't, I mean, I, I would hope that we all have the capacity for empathy. I don't think that that's a gender issue. While I don't want students to be like, oh, this is so cool. I'm like holding a, you know, decomposed hand or something like that. Like, I definitely don't want that. But if they come to my class with that in mind and I can teach them, hey, the more important thing is to have empathy for who this hand belonged to or who this skull belonged to, right? Then that's that's where me, that's where my duty and obligation as a professor comes in. Um, but I would say the overwhelming majority of people come because they either saw something on TV and were like, hey, that's kind of cool. I didn't know you could do that with a, with a human skeleton. And then out of that, there are a lot of folks who just like the idea of using the power of science to solve a social issue. And, and those are definitely the students I want because that is how I feel. Um, and within that, you know, that feeling that you can use your science to resolve injustices, to give an identity back to somebody, um, to answer a question for a victim's family, like those are all, those all feel very, like very much like noble causes. And so I think that once people understand um, that forensic anthropology or, or really biological anthropology in general um, is about so much more than just like picking up skeletal remains and, and being like, oh, cool, you know, what do, what do we do with these? I think that when they actually understand that there are these, um, these complex, and in my opinion, extremely important social um, issues that we can help to resolve, then that's what makes people stay. Are they all going to become anthropology majors? Definitely not. But I love the idea of training um, folks who are going to go be police officers, who are going to go be lawyers or defense attorneys um, or court reporters or whatever. I love the idea of training them to think like anthropologists out in the world. I know that you and your students sometimes discuss, study, and as far as I know, even tackle cold cases in class. How do you choose those cases and do your students' findings ever inform or add to decedent files? 
Yeah, so in my cold cases class that ran, let's see, last fall, um, I had about 16 students or so. And uh, I thought about giving them cold cases that I selected that, you know, I just have a personal interest in to see what they would come up with if they could uncover any new information. And instead, you know, I started thinking, like, that's the wrong way to go about it, at least for let's try a semester where um, they they generate the case um, and see what they come up with. And I think it was way more successful that way, because not only were they working in groups um, to figure out at the very outset the case that they wanted to cover, um, but they got really into it from a local perspective. So, I, you know, this is my anthropologist brain coming in here. I was just like, I want to see what students come up with. Because I have students that are mostly from New Hampshire, but also from Massachusetts and Connecticut. But for the most part, I would say they're from New England. Um, and interestingly, of course, they chose all New England cases. And what I will say, too, is that they, uh, one group, without telling me, they told me much after the fact, when I made them tell me why they selected their particular case, they said, well, we wanted to do, we wanted to select a case on a missing male. Because they felt like we didn't talk about that enough in class. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's a good learning moment for me. You know, I feel like I just kind of gravitate more, I guess, towards um, uh, Jane Doe cases. But, you know, so I took I took that as as kind of a, you know, a well-intentioned criticism and sort of changed up some, some topics that I teach in class um, afterwards. But uh, yeah, so they do choose their own cases for the most part. Um, unless I have a case where I have, you know, students that I have assigned to work with me on it. But in class, they choose their own case. They're, they choose their own cases. And I would say definitely their findings um, inform decedent files. And I saw that uh, I was very proud of of my last group of students because um, they went all in. I mean, one group started a Twitter account for missing persons in the Northeast, and they went all the way back to like 1950. And they have, you know, Twitter updates twice a week, just, um, you know, putting out information about missing persons. Another group made a great website um, all about the missing person that they covered. Um, one group did, or two groups did podcasts, and a couple of them interviewed detectives. A couple interviewed um, uh, an author that was writing a book about one of the cases. And so they they went fully in more than I um even expected. Uh, we also had a couple state police officers come to class as part of a guest lecture, and it ended up being sort of a flipped classroom where the law enforcement was asking the students what information they had come up with. And so um, that class became so fun to go to twice a week because it would be like people would be like bursting with like, oh my God, you're never going to guess what I found out. So to kind of switch things up a little bit, I want to ask you, what do you wish people knew about forensic anthropology that they don't know? So I think that um, students, and I know myself as a student, you come to forensic anthropology or just anthropology in general um, with a lot of enthusiasm. There's, uh, there is no way that I could say that the students that I work with are not enthusiastic. They are. They like. They want to be in a lab. They want to learn. They want to do casework. They want to do research, um, and so I think that that creates this idea that there are job opportunities. And as as we know, in a lot of uh, fields of the humanities and social sciences, um, you know, 
sometimes that's not the case. And I think that for forensic anthropology in particular, that's not true. Now, that's not to dissuade anyone from um, doing this. If they really love it, that's, of course, what you should do. And you owe it to yourself to, to try. Um, but if you want to be a forensic anthropologist, the reality is that you will be a professor almost certainly. So if you're, you know, thinking, oh, God, I just I could never picture myself teaching or like, you know, research isn't really my thing. Um, this is probably not the field for you. And and often I would encourage um, people to maybe go broader and, and be a forensic scientist in some other capacity and not just specialize in anthropology. Um, you know, it's sometimes really tedious uh, casework. Sometimes you get a lot. Sometimes you get nothing for six months. So if you're okay with those things, then, uh, you know, pursue a degree in forensic anthropology, but understand that, you know, um, you're going to be doing a lot of things other than than casework. And depending on where you're at in the country, you might be doing very little casework. Um, so that's what I wish people knew. I don't divorce myself scientifically from like the humanity of what we do. Um, certainly there are people who can and that's how they handle it. Um, but I think I should be affected by the sight of a dead body. I think it's strange. It would be strange to me to not think about that and to not think about victims and their families and the ripple effect that a crime has on either a family or a community. Um, so I think that if you're not prepared for this work to affect you personally, um, then that might not be the job for you too. Certainly you strike a balance. You know, I, I don't come home and cry about what I've seen, but I am affected by it. I think that that makes me a human being. So um, there are there are these things that I feel like we get indoctrinated to believe about forensic science at large and that's, or maybe even police work, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but that's, you know, that you have to be like, have this, this toughness about you and that you can't let anything affect you. But that's not, you know, in my case, that's not true. I think about some of the things that I've had to do um, in terms of forensic casework or what I've seen. Um, and it's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't wish that on people who don't want to see it. But at the same time, I feel proud of myself and my students that you can meet the that tough, that toughness with humanity too. So I think that um, that's what I would tell students. That's how I teach. That's that's how I move forward um, in my scholarship is with equal parts scientific kind of, um, you know, the ability to kind of scientifically remove yourself from what's right in front of you, but uh, the parallel ability to um, bring that back to like a, a human place um, when it feels very far away from um, humanity at, at that time. So this is just a question that I always wonder. Um, are there any forensic anthropologists who actually like the TV show Bones? <laughs> you know, I think that there probably are. Um, I, I've i actually never seen a full episode, and that's not because I'm, like, on some high horse being like, oh, I would never watch that. I just, I think it just came on at a time when I just wasn't, I wasn't into it or whatever, you know? You know, if Bones brings students in to a classroom, that that is, in my opinion, a good thing. You know, more people caring about cases matters. I'm very much not... A person who, you know, looks down my nose at people who watch fictionalized versions of, you know, TV crime shows, why not? Like, if this if this is something that is, you know, you come to as uh, as first entertainment for you, but it makes you think and it makes you, like, want to pursue something professionally or take a class on it to learn more, like, how can that not be a good thing? And I think that, um, you know, 
students have come up with really good critical questions because they've watched shows like Bones or because they've watched um, SVU or something like that. And then they come to me and say like, hey, I saw this on Bones, like, could this actually happen? Or they'll be looking at a case with me or, um, you know, archeological skeletal remains and they'll be like, they'll put what they saw on TV and why it can or can't be true. Um, you know, by looking physically at human remains. So I, I'm, I'm, I guess I would say I'm pro bones without ever having seen an episode. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start. <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. I just feel like if a student comes to you and is like, I love bones, which they tell me all the time for me to be like, well, this isn't anything like bones. It just would, if I was, a st if I was 20 years old, that would turn me off, you know? So I try yeah. to be like, oh, well, that's cool that it brought, that it brought you here. Like, here, you know, no, we don't have holograms, but you know, here's the cool stuff we can do. I think I take the tack or the the kind of approach that um, it brings them in the door, and then we can teach them what we really do. I have one last question for you: Are there any organizations that our listeners should be learning more about or supporting? Yeah, I think that you know, I'll answer this question about uh, I'll answer it selfishly. How about that? <laughs> organizations that I. Uh, feel like I really care a lot about. Um, one that your listeners might know or almost certainly know kind of thematically about is Sovereign Bodies Institute. And so this is um, Anita Lucchese and her team uh, who have a database for missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people. Um, I mean, I don't think that 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 can be understated the importance of that uh, of of having advocates for um, these databases and I think that Sovereign Bodies Institute does this amazing work to try to you know pull all these threads together and I mean the reality is unless we know who is going missing and who is being murdered I mean you can't begin to investigate like you have to know those figures first and in the United States you know because uh tribal lands are considered sovereign nations you know the state of wherever you know uh idaho or wyoming or new mexico or wherever um doesn't have to keep those figures on native people who live on reservations um so sovereign, sovereign bodies institute is a great uh, is a great resource i really really admire what that team is doing i think that if your listeners are interested in using uh, their own DNA to solve crimes. Um, it's worth their time if they've taken Ancestry or 23andMe tests to upload to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA and a website called dnasolves.com. Um, that's, of course, me glossing over the myriad privacy issues that people have concerns about. But if you're a person like me who, you know, I, I, I know about those privacy concerns and they don't bother me. So I've uploaded my DNA um, on these sites because I don't mind. Um, and so if, if you're a person who is fine with that um, and you've informed yourself about um, any privacy issues that you potentially feel are um, an issue for you, then I, would, I, I, I am an advocate for um, uploading your DNA. I've just seen it work too many times to not be an advocate for it. But I do, I will say that the caveat to that is that I think that we'll see kind of this play out in the court system in the next five, 10 years or so. But for the time being, um, you know, it is it is a reality that this is working. Special thanks to Amy Michael for joining us for this series. You can hear more from her in season eight of The Fall Line. And you'll find a link to the Sovereign Bodies Institute in our show notes. 
We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brookar Grove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store. Thank you.